Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Let's continue our journey, speaking with movers and shakers in the printing, typography, and design spaces who make space for others through community building. Welcome, Hello Print Friend, a podcast community with more than 200 episodes, nearly 100,000 followers on Instagram, and heard in print studios all over the globe. Hello Print Friend is a podcast dedicated to celebrating and amplifying contemporary printmaking and its culture. Releasing weekly interviews with artists, activists, curators, and print champions, they explore what brings together this passionate yet often geographically separated community across a press bed and around the world. Hello Print Friend is a product of Miranda Metcalf's love and passion for the medium of printmaking. After five years as director of Davidson Galleries in Seattle, Washington, she spent two years in Sydney, Australia, discovering new prints and new printmakers before relocating to Bangkok, Thailand, where she served as the director of the SAC Gallery. In 2021, she returned to the U.S. to work with Turner Carroll Gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In August 2023, she took up the position of director of the Institute for Electronic Arts, IEA, at Alfred University. The IEA is High Technology Research Studio Facility, encouraging and supporting projects that involve interactive multimedia systems, experimental sonic and video production, print media, digital imaging, and publications. In this episode, learn more about Miranda Metcalf, my newly found print twin, her historical pathway into printmaking, and her hugely thoughtful answer to why the printed medium intrigues her so much. You'll learn how Hello Print Friend got started and how it's evolved over time, including why and how it exists as a bilingual podcast. Learn more about Miranda's favorite recent guests, including a deep dive into Miranda's conversation with a famous political activist. It's fascinating. Finally, you'll be guided down a long and winding path to hear Miranda's favorite question to ask printmaking guests a discussion about the science of readability, and even a typographic connection to Thai letter forms. Okay, let's listen in. Hi, Miranda. Hi, how are you? Good. I love that we have matching microphones. No one can see this because it's all audio, but we have matching microphones, seemingly somewhat matching headphones, and we we look the part. Yeah, absolutely. We've got print paraphernalia behind us. I've, I've got a printing press. You've got some great prints, including a little friends of printmaking screen print behind you. So I think we've been just podcast twinning for quite I think a while. So. We didn't even know it. And here we, we are. We didn't even know it. So I guess my first question I need to ask is, uh, who is Miranda Metcalf in a nutshell? Yeah. Um, it's such an interesting question because it's like, how do we define ourselves? Is it what we do? Is it the relationships that we have? But I think it would probably be the most useful for your listeners would be to say that I am the co-host of the Hello Print Friend podcast, which is a 
podcast in which we interview people in the print ecosystem. Um, so we've interviewed gallerists and lots of printmakers and print publishers and collectors and patrons and everyone who makes the print world go. I'm also the director of the Institute for Electronic Arts at Alfred University, which is primarily a artist residency program, but we do many other things, including exhibitions and research and that sort of thing. And half of the residencies that we run are printmaking based and half are new media. So it's kind of a spectrum of the intersection of art and technology. And we can talk more about that later if that's interesting, but they're also fully funded residencies. So be on the lookout for the call, print friends, on that. And that means that I live in Alfred, New York, which is a village in beautiful upstate New York. 800 people in this village, uh, which I think definitely encapsulates a certain quality of life. And I am a caregiver to two rescue dogs from Thailand and a daughter and a aunt and a wife and all those things in the world, too. Yeah. So I think that we're twinning in way more ways than just this print podcast. There's a lot of similarities there. There's a lot of crossover working in a kind of educational space, working with kind of traditional media and new media. You got a dog, a rescue dog or two. I've got one. Yeah, I think this is uh, we found each other, Miranda. Amazing. <laughs> Podcasting, bringing, bringing the twins together finally. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love this. So I want to ask you some more about um, specifically your podcast and, and kind of what what it is all about for anyone who hasn't heard of this before. So the Hello Print Friend podcasting community is really, uh, as, as I, I read online, it's kind of a product of your love and passion for printmaking. So when did this printmaking journey begin for you and what do you love so much about it? Yeah, I really kind of fell into printmaking. And what I mean by that is I did my undergrad in philosophy and aesthetics. And so I did a lot of reading and writing about what art is and why and why do we value it and what can you call art and what can't you call art. And I wrote my undergraduate thesis on taxidermy as art and seeing if you could call what's going on at the National Taxidermy Convention in Missoula, Montana. Is that art? If so, why? If so, why not? All that kind of thing. And then I graduated in 2008 with a bachelor's in philosophy, which nobody cared about <laughs> because it was a financial crisis had just taken over and it was a bachelor's in philosophy and there were no jobs at the philosophy factory. And so I did an internship and then I ended up in graduate school and art history because I thought I loved art. I love talking about art and thinking about it. But art history actually seemed to have a pathway into real life money making jobs in the world. So this you can work in museums, you can work in appraisals, you can work in auction houses, you can do all kinds of things with an art history degree. And I wanted to study animals and art because I'm a big animal person. And I found someone at the University of Arizona, Dr. Pia Cuneo, who also was studying animals and art and animals in art. And her expertise happened to be printmaking. And so I kind of came to it through this sort of back door where I was really interested in the way animals show up in our art and why. And then Dr. Pia Cuneo, uh, much to my luck, 
is a expert in 16th century horses in prints, particularly in German prints and Spanish prints and tack and how they appear and fit into society at the time and the things they can tell us. And so, so I was introduced to printmaking and really fell in love with it because it had to do with how people put subversive ideas out into the world because they of course have the capacity for multiples. So if you want to spread an idea, you can use printmaking, but then also they can be small. You can hide them. You can put pornography on them. You can put politics on them. You can put unflattering portraits of the King on them. And I think this idea that you can get into history through printmaking and get into the really juicy part of history and the juicy part of sort of constructions of Western culture and Western contemporary culture. And then how that runs through in a parallel to new media or expanded media. And, you know, you think about printmaking and it's maybe contemporary parallel of the internet. You know, what do we put on the internet? We put our pornography, we put our politics, we put our ideas we want to get out there. And all of that was just super interesting. And then I just loved the aesthetics of it. I loved just the way prints look, the way they feel, the intimacy of a work on paper, the fact that you hold it up, you put it close to your face, you can see and feel and smell the ink in a way that other media for instance, oil paintings is just a different relationship. Mm. And as so I loved print for, for many reasons, but mostly all of the above. <laughs> yeah, I love that you're coming at it from such kind of an art history perspective, which is is something that I know very little about. So it's neat to see that kind of side of it. And I never had, I never put together kind of the parallels of the way in which the the content that was put into print for so many years uh, is kind of the same or, or parallels now what we see on the internet. And, and again, you said the intimacy of the medium and it's just, it just has a different relationship to looking at an oil painting, which has that much more of an arm's length relationship and all of this kind of rich subtext that is that lives within print. I think that's such an interesting, an interesting way to, uh, or, or kind of place that you've come at it from. So I, I very much appreciate all of that. Yeah. Now, what is your what what do you like to use to print? What what's your favorite technology, whether old or new, to create any work that you're that you're working on? Yeah. So one of the the kind of shocking public secrets of Hello Print Friend is that I'm not a practicing printmaker. I am just a full print wonk, print head, print nerd, print enthusiast, print champion. But what's but behind you? Do you print oh, on that? Yeah, very good question. Right. As <laughs> using context clues, uh, <laughs> there is a big Fuchs and Lang uh, steel press behind me. So <laughs> I married a printmaker and that belongs to Tim Pauschak, my husband. So it's, I always joke about marrying a printmaker. It's like, hang around a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. You know, it's like, <laughs> hang around the printmakers, you're going to marry one. <laughs> and so this is actually a, a litho press and we bought this when we were living in Santa Fe and moved it across the country. Hope to never do it again. Like let's get buried in this house. Um, but it's, yeah. So he prints litho on it and plate litho because it's just in our house. So stone litho is not 
really going to be an option in terms of the storage in this old Victorian house. We are already testing the floorboards with our Fuchs and Lang. Um, <laughs> but he also works at the university, teaches advanced print, teaches figure drawing. And so he has access to the stones there and can work um, there. But here, yeah, it's it's the flat files and the printing press. And that's, yeah, his his litho practice at home. Power couple. <laughs> power print couple i love that so let me ask you then your nieces and or nephews are they interested and curious in the printing press and what you're doing it's, it's like an art making practice is that something you ever do with them yeah so it's something i force on them yes. as cool auntie so they are getting books for christmas about lithography um they, gosh there was some who produced it I'm not going to remember, but there was, maybe it was Pace actually made like a child's litho book this year that is going so to be good. whether or not they want it, they're going to get it for Christmas. <laughs> and, um, and then they, and when uh, Rosie, the youngest was, was a baby baby, I got her a book that was sort of the, you know, when newborns, they can't, they really can't see hardly at all. And so they like really hot, high contrast things. And it was a book that was called like the newborns art book. And it was famous works of art that had been turned super high contrast. So Andy Warhol's soup can, that sort of thing. So fun. And so, um, she loved it though. Like they said, you know, when she was really fussy, you know, newborns baby book would kind of put her to sleep. And so I think that I'm planting the seeds um, of all of it. And, you know, they're, I would say, pretty engaged with it. Um, and the older one, Georgie, she uh, is really starting to create quite intentional compositions, uh, which we're all very excited about. She's, she's, uh, yeah, I, I think that if I, if I have anything to say about it, they're going to be art related <laughs> in some way. Yes. Yes. It's so funny. My uh, almost seven-year-old, um, she told me, I don't know, at one point we were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Someone asked her that question and there was some talk of that. And she, she looked us in the eye and said, I want to be an art teacher, but first I need to travel around the world, understand arts from different places in the world, and then I can come back and teach it. I was like, where did this idea, where was this idea planted? But she said it now a few times. I'm like, oh man, this is, you've got your heart set on, on something very specific, kid, but I am behind you. That's beautiful. I wish I had that kind of clarity, honestly, at any point in my life. Me too. Me honestly. too. Yeah, a truly. Ab absolutely. And maybe this is a good, uh, a good segue then for like when you started Hello mm. Print Friend, where did you hope it would lead? And and maybe maybe you didn't necessarily have uh, kind of the clarity. I know I didn't when I was starting this podcast. I kind of started it on a on a not on a whim, but uh, not quite knowing and being open to the possibilities of where it would go. So, like, in what ways has it been the journey you expected? And in what <laughs> ways has it been um, kind of unexpected or different than than uh, what you anticipated? Yeah. So I ended up starting it because. At the time, I was working at a gallery that focused on printmaking in Seattle. I'd been there about five years. And I loved printmakers and I loved working with them. And as I said, I'm not a printmaker myself. And there's very few print-specific curator jobs in the world. And I didn't want to leave the medium. And so I was moving to Sydney, Australia, because my 
aforementioned printmaker husband had gotten into the MFA program in printmaking at University of New South Wales in Sydney. And so I knew that I was going to be leaving this job and making a big break, honestly, from uh, the United States where I had all of these connections to Australia. And so I thought, how am I going to continue to force printmakers to talk to me because I love talking with printmakers. You know, how am I going to do this? And I loved podcasts. I grew up on NPR, grew up listening to Ira Glass and This American Life and the wonderful shows through that. And so from there, I knew that kind of wedding the two things would probably give me what I was looking for, the printmaking and the podcasts. And so I think it from the beginning, it really came from a place of just not wanting to lose what I loved. And so in that, if that was the only goal and the primary goal, that absolutely came true in the sense that no matter where I've been in the world, because I was in Sydney and then I was in Canberra and then I was in Bangkok and then I was in Santa Fe and now I'm in a, a village in upstate New York and I've been able to carry the podcast with me and carry the connections that I love and adore and continue to ask printmakers to tell me their stories, which is something that's very rewarding and meaningful. And so I think in that case, it's kind of been more than my expectation has come true for it. And then sort of unexpected things probably revolves mostly around, I didn't expect and this is going to sound kind of strange, so just bear with me. But I didn't expect a very low level of celebrity to come with it, which I never thought would ever be a thing. But I will be at printmaking conferences and I'll, for instance, be sitting in an auditorium waiting for a talk to start and I'll be talking to someone I know and the person sitting in front of me will do this slow turnaround because they hear my voice mm. <laughs> and they'll say, Oh, you're Miranda from the hello print friend. Podcast. I love that. And it almost seems like a, I think because the podcast came from such a place of what I needed and what I really needed in my life at the time. And what I really felt like was a life raft in a lot of ways through huge changes through the pandemic and really almost from a pretty self-serving place. It, sometimes surprises me when I get out into the world and people say like, I've listened to every episode and I know these things about you because I talk, you know, you, as we do now, you end up having a really natural conversations with people you have a rapport with, and then you reveal things about yourself and it just sort of happens. And so I think that's been super unexpected for me and a little bit of a learning curve to figure out what, um, you know, what do you, do with that you know how do you talk to someone who knows everything about you because they've listened to over 200 hours of you yammering and and so that's been delightful and incredibly flattering and humbling but also unexpected I don't think I ever thought it would come to, it would come to that 
Yeah, that's a great point. And that's, it, it still surprises me. I mean, I have a much, much smaller following than you do. And, and primarily, uh, because my, uh, this platform really interweaves with my teaching and, and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's mainly students who I'm seeing day in and day out anyway. But yeah, there's a few times I was at a conference the other day and they're like, yeah, so I, I listened to your, your podcast. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, I, I forgot that there's like, that's an option. People can listen to it out in the wild. So it's, yeah, it's so neat to hear you say that. And it's it's beautiful to see that this community that you've created is of value and is of kind of is benefiting others and has a bit of a ripple effect that maybe you didn't really ever anticipate. Yeah, the other day, I was walking around Alfred University, and there was a big banner that was spray painted that said, Hello, print friend. It just jumped and it was just something that it, the print club had put up to get mm -hmm. people's attention and then you know said Alfred University Print Club or something like that but they listened to the podcast and it, it comes from that and then I I just really it's such a personal practice mm -hmm. and it's such an intimate one you know you're one-on-one -on -one, you've got the headphones on it just feels like you're sitting around a fire with someone often having these conversations. And then as you spoke to, it can give you a bit of a double take when you realize that people are listening when you put it out into the world. <laughs> and if I may, it almost parallels or is has a likeness to that intimacy that you mentioned with print, right? Mm. You can pick it up, you can smell it, you can be there with it. Uh, so it's almost a different experience to like a, a, a live stage performance or something where, yeah, again, yeah. it's a bit of a an arm's length, like you are in someone's ears and you are kind of right there with them in wherever they are in their day. So, And often you are a studio companion because mm -hmm. a lot of people in the print world, I know, listen to the podcast while they're working because especially if they're in the editioning phase of what they do, because that's really repetitive. People kind of get into a flow state to do it. And they've often said that I listen to you in the studio. And so I feel like you're in the studio with me, which is a, a really intimate place to be with someone. Absolutely. Totally. Now you produce... Uh, episodes of Hello Print Friend, both in English and Spanish, which is fascinating to me. And I would love for you to just kind of tell me more about why and how you produce a multilingual podcast in this space. Yeah. So a big part of why I started it, you know, as I talked about, was wanting to stay connected to the print world. And then as it grew, I realized wanting to create connections within the print world was also something that was really interesting to me. And one of my favorite things would be when someone would say, I heard this person on your podcast and I reached out to them and now we're doing a collaboration or we're doing a exchange together or I'm, I'm going to go to their city and I'm going to look them up and we got a copy and it was great. And that was just so rewarding, so cup filling. and. The Spanish-speaking world has incredible print history and incredible printmakers. You know, I mean, Jose Posada, of course, historically, and then, you know, more recent artists like Francisco Toledo, Rufino Tamayo, just to name a few of the, the big guys out there. And then a super rich contemporary printmaking scene. I have never been to Oaxaca, but I have heard that print studios in Oaxaca are like Starbucks. You might find one across the street from another one. And I felt because I'm, I don't 
speak Spanish really cut off and really felt like if I was drawing a portrait of the beast that is contemporary printmaking, it was missing an arm and a leg and a tail and half its brain by only doing English speaking episodes. And so I interviewed Ronaldo Gil Zambrano, who is my co-host, actually had him on as a guest. And I just instantly was so impressed with him. And he's just such a delightful person, open and kind and intelligent. And I had had these ideas of doing bilingual podcasts where someone would be interviewed in English and Spanish. And we still do those sometimes because they have a really interesting effect for people for how they communicate about their work, depending on what language they're speaking. And of course, reading a, reaching a broader audience. And so I asked him if he wanted to collaborate on a few and he did. And then that just really naturally grew for him reaching out to artists on his own and really running a totally parallel podcast that comes out on the same channel. You know, he does the research, he does the editing, he uh, does the interviewing and we try and release one every week, one in English, one in Spanish. And we're pretty good at it, but, you know, we're all also living lives, right? And it just feels like it speaks to the interconnectedness of the print world. And if we were in a studio together and we didn't speak the same language, we wouldn't necessarily need to because print is so physical and so visual and so intuitive. And so... We can't really recreate that, but we can create a space in which we're saying we're all print friends here and it doesn't matter where you are. We've talked to artists in over 30 countries. They're all print friends. And yeah, creating that message, I guess, was important to both Ronaldo and I, and we continue to hold that value, I think. And and we've got... um some projects on the horizon that aren't quite confirmed yet that I can't quite talk about yet, but I think it's going to be expansive and, you know, expanded to just as a little Easter egg, expanded to video in some exciting ways in the future as well um, to sort of create again, the shared experience of being print and in video, you know, you can, as this book, you can see works, you can put subtitles on, there's more you can do to create that bridge in video than you can in just audio. That sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. really exciting. Okay, I'll stay tuned. But yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to me the ways in which you're you're bridge building really through creating this multilingual podcast or these these two parallel side by side podcasts that um, that that speak to such a wider number of people and can can reach a wider number of people simply through language. Is there any thoughts on expanding to different languages in different parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've talked with a few people who have or who are multilingual and um um none of it has quite come to fruition yet, but we definitely have talked with people and talked about maybe even doing a one-off episode here and there or kind of a bonus episode and just sort of see where it goes. But yeah, so far not yet, but We'll uh, we'll see we'll see where the next couple of years take us. Yeah, very cool. Sky's the limit. I can't offer up any additional languages. <laughs> yeah. English is it? Yeah, English I, is it? English is it? Pretty much for me too. Um, I took 
uh, I took Latin as my language in college um, because it's really it's quite useful for art history, particularly if you're doing you know 16th century and and before art history, and it's it's a it's a good groundwork for learning other languages. So if I have had to pick up you know a little bit of something before a trip, it's useful. But in terms of conversation, I don't have anything to learn. I I think about when I did a a study abroad in Italy, I went with a, a friend, a musician who was playing um, playing like the music for a wedding in a big fancy church somewhere in Umbria, who was, he was Italian. And, and we're um, waiting for the wedding guests to start. And we're sitting there, we're talking to the priest and the priest, he, he said that my Italian friend said, he's a cool priest. He's swearing. So, you know, we should go hang out with him. And the priest is looking at me and he's just, you know, you know, being like French, German, Spanish, like listing all the languages that he <laughs> speaks, you know, trying to see if he can talk to me, Italian, you know? And I just was like, no, no, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm from the United States. Like, you know? <laughs> apologetically, yeah. just English, just, just, English. just staring at my sneakers, you know? <laughs> That's too uh, funny. Yeah. That's too funny. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, so in in English, uh, in on this podcast, who has been your favorite interview of recent mm. recent months, years, what have you? Uh, can I pick? Can I pick three? Do you I can do whatever you would like. Because okay. <laughs> this year we had, I had some guests on who. I really had been wanting to talk to for a long time. Some of them since maybe the beginning of the podcast. So that felt really exciting and significant. One of them was the wonderful Amos Kennedy, um, incredible printmaker, incredible person, living treasure. And, you know, that I had really high expectations for that interview because of his reputation. And he just blew them all out of the water. He just was so inspiring and funny and intelligent and has an incredible story about how he came to print and, you know, was being employed at at and not working. He was very clear that that was a difference. He was like, I wasn't doing any work <laughs> and, and doing that and, and making prints there and giving them away. And just his, his whole attitude to what print is and what it does was incredible. And that was this huge honor. Um, Melanie Yazzie, uh, is a wonderful printmaker. She teaches at University of Colorado Boulder and is just an absolutely beloved figure in the contemporary print world. I'd had so many artists on who spoke to her as an inspiration or a mentor. And she was just absolutely delightful and has an incredible story of, of her own practice. And again, how she came to it. She grew up on the Navajo Nation and saw making, you know, with her grandmother kind of in like the the day-to-day life and you know ended up traveling all around the world and doing workshops with indigenous people in Russia and Japan and New Zealand and just using that as as a vehicle to make incredible things with incredible people and we just had a wonderful time talking about traveling and and again printmaking as a bridge you know where she can show up somewhere where she's never met anyone and maybe she doesn't know the language and how do you connect? You know, you do it through the act of print. And then the kind of bonus, I guess, for that was super unexpected, but was uh, a feather in our cap this year was Nadia Tolonakova, who people might know better as Pussy Riot. Um, just a couple of 
weeks after she was put on Russia's most wanted list because of a print. She made a print um, that was a figure of the Virgin Mary that said, Mother Mary, please become a feminist. And she had used the form of the Virgin Mary to resemble vulva, which historically the Virgin Mary usually resembles vulva, but this was considered just huge blasphemy. And that was when it kind of pushed her onto this. This most wanted list was because of this blasphemous image, which was a print that uh, that she created and I believe sold as a fundraiser. Um, and so, yeah, so that was just something that I had never expected. Uh, but she was also um, an incredible guest, incredibly intelligent and thoughtful. And I came away, um, you know, really... Uh, really moved by her and it was definitely the first podcast I'd done that had a big lead up to it almost in terms of sort of security stuff I got a big email from her team saying that she's geo-anonymous don't ask her anything about where she is or anything that could identify where she is um she is still processing PTSD from being in a Russian prison camp. Do not ask her anything about that. You know, I never had kind of such a a, a heavy lead up to an interview before, um, but also all for very good reason. And I think that stands out this year as well, just as an unusual one and also one that did not see coming. It kind of was... Um, dropped into my lap in the best way and it it was sort of said you know you can you can talk to her at 8 a.m on saturday and this was thursday i was like okay let's, let's get her book and see if we can read it you know between now and then and that kind of thing wow fascinating <laughs> that sounds like an incredible highlight reel if we can call it that or kind yeah, of yeah. snapshot of of who you've had a chance to to chat with about their their printmaking practices and how did uh th that last interview you just described how did that kind of come to be if i can ask like yeah. did you did you reach out to her or did someone what how did that happen I'm yeah say more so, yeah <laughs> like how does one get uh, a, a extremely famous uh, political activist on your podcast? Um, so it, it just was, um, you know, kind of right place, right time. I was living in Santa Fe at the time and I had been doing some work for a gallery called Turner Carroll Gallery and they have a, a secondary space called Container where they show installation work and Nadia had we had an opening on the horizon at container where she had it, the, it was called container because it's truly containers that have been stacked together as you know shipping containers so it's a huge open space and she had totally transformed the space there'd been pyrotechnics she had found um ukrainian american artists and technicians to work with sort of exclusively to put money um in their pockets through the creating of this immersive space and because that she was going to have this opening and they were looking for ways to promote it because it was sort of her New Mexican Santa Fe debut, uh, they just said, hey, Miranda, you have a podcast, you know, would you like to have her on and got got me in touch with her team and then uh, went from there. Very interesting. Very cool experience, I'm sure. And, and as you say, all of that really intense kind of lead up 
to it, but but all for good reason. And and I can only imagine. I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I I I will after this. I'm just gonna take <laughs> gonna take the dog for a walk, and I'll I'll have a listen. Yeah, yeah, that one's definitely worth listening to for sure. And you know, it was one of the episodes as well, and and the research of it as well, kind of leading up where. Like what I want to say is that like I was surprised by kind of the depth of her thought and the sort of staggering intelligence that she has. And I think part of that is because the punk rock aesthetic is so straightforward. It's so in your face. It's so unsubtle. And I think that people can, and myself included, sometimes associate that with simplicity or with reactivity and then when actually speaking with Nadia, I realized how intentional all of that is and how essential that is to her ethos and her philosophy and her worldview. And it really opened my mind up and hopefully listeners' minds up to the fact that there's so much going on with her and her artistic practice. And it's not that I had a poor vision of it before. It just had to do with the fact that actually getting that intimate space with her in that uh, one-on-one conversation, I just was left, you know, even an even bigger fan, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Really, really neat. And, and in all of those conversations with those three individuals you mentioned and beyond, do you have some favorite questions that you typically like to ask or what, what is something that, maybe even you come back to time and time again that that you like to ask. Yeah, because it, it's the questions that I ask, and I'm sure you have this experience too, you know, they're often so specific to the person that's on, you know, there's not a lot of universals, you know, to get good answers or as, as Ira Glass once said, to make good tape, which I often think about, I heard, and, um, and then my technicians at the, uh, Institute for Electronic Arts always cringe when I say that because they're like, there's no tape, Miranda. (laughs) It's not tape anymore. I was like, nope, nope, we're making good tape. Um, You know, they do need to be kind of specific and come from a place of knowing this person a little bit and knowing their practice a little bit. But in terms of what I love to ask, I love it whenever I have an opportunity to just say, say more about that to someone. When you can kind of feel that there's more of a story there, but maybe they need a little bit of permission to go there. And that's, I think, often when things are getting really juicy because we want as humans, and maybe this is a broad generalization, but in my experience, we want as humans to be vulnerable because it is how we build connection. It is how we feel connected to other human beings is through vulnerability. But sometimes we need permission to do it. Like we need to be encouraged so it doesn't feel self-indulgent perhaps. And we need to know that it's a safe space to do it in. And so just the simple phrase, say more about that, I hope conveys both of those and creates the atmosphere in which people will reveal things about themselves and will open up and will offer the vulnerability which creates the connection which creates the interest and I think makes everyone in the situation me my interviewee the people 
listening while struggling with their litho stone at three in the morning makes everyone feel less alone, which I think is a lot of what this is all about, at least for me. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. And I couldn't agree more in terms of vulnerability. And I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't quite pieced it together in my brain in that way that without permission, it can feel in sometimes self-indulgent or it can feel mm -hmm. like, oh, dude, I don't, I don't need to share that. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not necessary or it's not what they're asking. But if you do ask, hey, tell me more. It can mm -hmm. be just that, that extra nudge that's needed to create the connection. Yeah. Um, one of the, well, I lived, I lived in Australia for a couple of years and the Australians are famously good with with words they've got many great turns of phrase down there um but one of them that really kind of captured i think some of that maybe some of that reluctance that sort of things they call something called tall poppy syndrome which is this idea that the tall poppy gets cut down and so you know kind of saying or doing anything that feels braggadocious or gets you attention or makes you stand out i think that we have that a lot less in the States. We're extremely individualistic culture, but that it's a good word for that kind of impulse of, of putting your neck out maybe, you know, where you're saying, okay, I'm not sure if this is okay to say, but I'm, I'm going to say it because it feels right. And sometimes you just need a little bit of someone to open the door mm -hmm. and say like, it's okay. It's safe here. Walk through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that sentiment and that those kind of opportunities for connection that that you open up in your work. Now, I, I do have one question that I do like to ask those <laughs> who live in the art and design and type space. So I'm going to ask you this question, may I? Please, yeah. Okay, okay. If you had to choose only one typeface to choose or to, to use rather for the rest of your life, which one would it be and why? Which would you choose and why? This feels like a very vulnerable question. It is. <laughs> Say more. Tell me more. Because I feel like there's so much judgment that goes into what typefaces people use. And no why. judgment. No judgment here. <laughs> and um and and I think uh, that is, is probably one of those things that I think there's a lot of judgment because I judge people a lot. Ooh, the truth is revealed. <laughs> the truth is revealed. You know, um, like I like like I call it like the live laugh love font. You know, like when you see that places and you're like, hmm, mm. just learn something about the culture that's chosen this font. You know, mm. and um, but I. So I grew up, as we were, as we were talking about, we're, we're 80s babies, right? So we grew up in our formative years when Times New Roman ruled. Like it was, it was, it was the it was the default font on anything that you touched, and it was what I wrote all of my you know early papers in and that sort of thing. Um, you know, my very first typed out papers in seventh grade, and. So I think because of that, and it's not 
particularly hip, but I'm I'm still a serif girl. I still, you know, and I do I have seen serifs are coming are making a comeback. You know, 10 years ago, you you know, you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't find a serif anywhere, but like I've I've been seeing them working their way back in. It's a very long way to say I really love uh and I'm not even trying to say it, but Garamond or Garamond? Yeah, Garamond. Garamond. I love Garamond. And there's something about the balance between the capital letters and the lowercase letters and the kerning is really tight and they kind of letters always look sort of tucked in together like they look cozy and they look safe and they've got these big letters that that sort of watch over them and there's something about it that I just find really comforting in in that typeface I love this analysis that you're doing. It makes me happy. <laughs> it makes me really happy. And it's funny because I was just using, I was doing a demo. I teach an intro to typography course and I was doing a lab demo yesterday. And just by chance, per chance, I stumbled upon or I was using Garamond, which I don't usually do. So I feel like there's there's something there. And I, I've, I've seen it very recently to, mm. to know that, uh, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from and the, the coziness and, and the, the larger letters watching over yeah and there's there's the, the the forms and the lowercase letters are so round and uniform as well and so they they really look like little ships tucked in for the night in their birth or, or little peas in a pod or something like that like they have this this ordered round coziness and these big letters who are making sure that they're that they're okay <laughs> I love that. And uh, a lot of the Dr. Seuss books were oh, really? are set in Garamond and many editions of Harry Potter also set in Garamond. Hey, yeah, that's classic some cozy reading. Cozy yeah. reading. Long document, <laughs> really good for readability. Yeah, that was interesting because I wanted to ask you how 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 it stacks on on readability because that's something, you know, not being a super typeface world person. I feel like I hear all kinds of people going back on back and forth about what is more readable. Is it serif? Is it sans serif? You know, how how does it all work? Yeah. Um, so I recently just had a discussion, soon to be coming episode, uh, with um, Eleni. And Eleni is the creative director at Dalton Meg, which is a type foundry in the UK. And we had this exact conversation about readability. Mm. So I won't I won't give it all away, but what she essentially um, uh, spoke about was this idea of um, certainly legibility and being able to kind of uh, discern that this is an A and this is a G mm -hmm. and this is an R very quickly. But also there's this factor of kind of likability and recognizability that plays into um, whether something is inherently readable or not. So it's kind of a combination of factors, but definitely uh, serifs in general we like them for readability because they give weight mm -hmm. to the baseline and they allow our eyes to travel along the baseline a little bit easier than uh, a sans serif typeface. And part of that, truthfully, could just be the the recognizability, the, the frequency in which they're used in print. We we understand them to to be able to do that, to, to give mm -hmm. some weight to the baseline and enhance readability. But it's a whole science, one in which I am uh, only scraping the surface of here. But yeah, listen, ha have a listen to that episode coming out. I definitely soon. will. <laughs> it's interesting. It makes me wonder just 
as you're describing this idea of weight and recognizability is that so I have the moderate dyslexia and I wonder if maybe that's also why I love a serif is because they're more distinctive because that sort of discerning and keeping symbols is part of what gets a little bit uh, sometimes lost in the mix like to to this day I will not remember there between a seven and a two like like if somebody's like what day is that happening the 27th or the 22nd I'll be like I'm sorry I can't help you I know it's not the 72nd <laughs> because we're talking about a day of the month but like that's it because because of that that shape you know that that's they they're written in this big um you know kind of curl at the top and and so yeah, that's really interesting. So I wonder if that's part of it too. And and maybe the cozy feeling that I get is that it's it's like, okay, we're safe here. Everything's very clear. Yeah. Know? Each each character is distinct. The P's mm-hmm. and the Q's and the B's and the D's are are distinct from one another. So there's not that kind of flipping effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whereas like in in yeah, in in Ariel, where it's just like a like a circle in a line, there's a lot less to hold on to on that guy. Yes. Yes, yeah. and which and I it it hurts me slightly to say it, although I am becoming friendlier with this typeface. <laughs> Comic Sans is excellent mm. for. Uh, I mean, it has its time and place in a kindergarten classroom. When I mm-hmm. receive notifications home from the world of kindergarten, I get it; it makes sense there. But it also is a very uh, excellent typeface for uh, anyone who does have uh, uh, sits anywhere kind of on the spectrum of dyslexia mm-hmm. because of the very distinctive nature of each and every character. There's none of that kind of flipping that tends to happen with uh, B's and D's, P's and Q's, etc. That's really good to know. Yeah, I just thought of like a, a short little anecdote about how I realized in the course of our conversation that I'm worried about being judged because I judge people. Um, which is such like a human thing. But it was uh I when I was in Sydney, I was working briefly for a couple of artists, um, an artist like a, a, a duo artist studio that just were 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 it's a whole nother thing, but they I didn't work there long. But they had a piece that I think Jerry Saltz had just ripped apart in a review, a public art piece. And they published a reply letter that was done in this, I don't even remember what it was, but it was it was a script font with like where everything was really crushed together. And they'd published on their website and it was almost from my point of view, like, illegible really because I think it also was like uh they had like a their their website had like a dark background and then light colored letters and then it was all squished together and I'd been keeping a friend back home in the state surprised of the situation because it was kind of fun and dramatic and I sent him a link to the website and I said uh I've sent this to you now and that type I, so what did I put it? It was like, I was like, I've sent it to you. I just sent you the link, but be warned with that typeface, you have to show it to someone else in seven days or you will die. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, it does. I think it it, is. He said, like, it's, it's, as we sort of talked about, like, it is something that people 
can be sort of snooty about, but it really matters, particularly if you're doing something like taking the time to reply to a critic and you put all this thought into things and then you publish it in something that likability wise, no one is going to sit through. Have you just sort of shot yourself in the foot for all the effort that you've just put in? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) And yeah, type has, I mean, this is a whole separate conversation, but type has voice and Mm -hmm. the way in which uh, I was just even finishing up uh, some lecture slides for later this week. And I'm going to do some uh, font karaoke where, (laughs) where (laughs) the students have to come up and read, read the, the line, uh, according to the the typeface that it's set in. So one is like, I will always find you and it's bubbly. And then the other one is like this really <laughs> creepy blood dripping uh, scripty font. And it's like, I will always find you. <laughs> yeah, type has voice. Absolutely. Yeah, and if totally you want, has voice. And if you want to be taken seriously or you're, I should say, you want to express a particular point of view or communicate a particular stance, then absolutely the typeface that you choose matters in which to do that. It should be legible, it should be readable, but it should also communicate the voice and that kind of layered nuance that you're hoping to um, uh, that you're hoping to express. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm definitely one of those people who, if you ever have someone, I've I've had people in my life who just write in all caps is just a matter of, <laughs> you know, they just do it. I got to yep. know. Sometimes it's people who are maybe older and they just haven't um, have aren't really uh, adept at typing for whatever reason. And it just I always hear it shouting like it doesn't like it, <laughs> it just if, doesn't matter if it's a text or an email. It could be the friendliest thing, but it's just like. It was so nice to see you at Thanksgiving. You know, <laughs> like, very shouty and very um, unreadable from the standpoint mm-hmm. of not being able to discern the the tops of the characters. Because this is another thing you'll hear in that conversation with Eleni. But basically, we our eyes jump from kind of like four or five, six letters, and they jump to a next letter and the next letter and the next letter. And then we, f- our brain fills mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the middle bits with the top shape of the character. So it's all caps is not only shouty, but it's genuinely more difficult for our brains to decode on, on this yeah. side. Yeah. This is, this is maybe getting uh, too deep in the weeds. So feel free to edit it, of course. But <laughs> it's really making me think about when I was living in Thailand and learning Thai and Thai has many more vowel sounds than uh, the English language does. And so truly to learn it, you need to learn the writing system. Mm. Um, whereas, uh, you know, at, at another Eastern language in, in Japanese, there's not really any sounds that exist that we don't have in English. So in theory, you could learn how to speak it by just writing the anglicized versions of the words but Thai is isn't isn't that way there's just sounds that we don't have any standard standardized way of marking them Mm. and it also like many uh languages in asia there's not um there's no spaces between words so it just all is together and i was there for a year. I was, I was taking lessons. I was working with a Thai team. And so I really put a lot of effort into learning the language, at least to become sort of functional with it. And um, did not come up in our previous conversation about languages because I have since forgotten all of it because I'm not using it. So I no longer think of myself as someone who could speak Thai. But um, it's 
there they had you know essentially sort of serif and sans serif fonts mm. and i never was able to read the sans serif fonts um it was just these really reduced versions of the thai characters and i could make an educated guess about most of them but i just never got to the point i needed that the formality of the extra bits on the word forms and so anyway just sort of thinking I've never thought about that in the context of typography before but as someone acquiring the language and learning a new writing system it was just completely a jump that my brain even after a year of study really could never make and I, I my Google Translate on my phone could it was fine with that so if I needed to read a sign in the mobile that, that, you know, in the cell phone store or something like that, that was written in this way. Um, I would have to pull up my phone to do it though. So yeah, but I, I, I needed the more complex forms in, in order to be able to read the language. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And that makes me think even of my, um, my, my six-year-old again, who is, who is learning to read and she's been reading mm -hmm. for the past year or so now, but we'll pull out a book and, the the publisher of this book maybe didn't take into account the the level of the reader so oftentimes it's in very very clear very highly readable serif typeface but then you'll get one that's kind of scripty or handwritten or something mm -hmm. that is outside of that kind of formal writing system as you're you're describing and she'd be like wait what does that say what letter is that this is yeah. this is like is not recognizable to my brain and so we'll talk about what the letter is and how it looks different sometimes but it's fascinating that mm. these these kind of ways in which we write characters in an kind of in the Latin alphabet in English, we don't we kind of take for granted sometimes as as native readers that so many variations of characters do exist. And we just mm -hmm. our brains naturally kind of understand what they are. Yeah. And that's, you know, because when you're going through the journey of language acquisition, right? You're right. You're like a baby again, right? Like you can like you can understand the baby books and the baby songs and that sort of thing. And that was something else that I never really, at least in the time I was there, was able to acquire was quick notes. You know, if somebody on my team wrote a quick note, I would just I it would, you know, it would look like just like squiggly lines you know where like but of course any of the people who grew up speaking I mean they could have read it with no problem so it is yeah I had the same experience that your six-year-old is having <laughs> <laughs> well you're one up than me because I haven't even tried to learn another language so <laughs> good on you good on you yeah. but M Miranda it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting to meet you in this way and uh, picking your brain about all things podcasting in kind of creating audio for a highly visual space, which I'm often asked, like, mm -hmm. how do you do that? And why do you do that? Mm -hmm. And I think your answers spoke so eloquently to the the ways and whys of, of how that happens. So it's been, yeah, an absolute pleasure to meet you today. And I hope that one day we'll get to meet in person and uh, and kind of cross paths in, in this small but large community of print. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been like absolutely a highlight, Diana. Thank you so much. And please come on Hello Print Print sometime and tell us your story. Amazing. And tell us about the work that you do. I think that would be really fun. We'll, we'll keep twinning here. I love it. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you. Talk to you soon. 
Thank you, Miranda, and all of the print friends all over the world. The community coming up next is the newly launched Canadian Typography Archives, where I'll be chatting with board member Sam Archibald. Stay tuned. <laughs>